I'm out here, you know, sweating, exhausted, dying, walking, crying. And I've got this degree from University of Waterloo and I could have a six-figure job. Like, what am I doing? Let's talk for a moment about the Ironman Triathlon. It is a super long version of the triathlons you've probably watched during the Summer Olympics. The Ironman is about four times as long and it takes hours to complete. Does this seem utterly overwhelming to you? Because it really does to me. But today's guest made a career out of running them. Lisa Bentley is an 11-time Ironman champion and she's represented Canada on multiple national teams. By the way, Lisa also has cystic fibrosis. It's an often fatal genetic lung disease. Today, Lisa has transitioned from professional athlete to motivational speaker, author, and TV commentator. She joins the podcast to discuss her career, including the setbacks and challenges she found along the way. Keep listening. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Um, So... I'm interested to know how you got started racing triathlons and then how did that progress into competing in Ironman, which is just a whole other thing. (laughs) Well, I mean, University of Waterloo was part of it because when I went away to university from high school, I was determined to join some sort of sport um, so that I would have community. So I joined cross-country running and track. And of course, every runner out there gets injured, which then made me start swimming and biking. <laughs> and, and then uh, in my third year university, I was doing a running race in Toronto and I was running in High Park. And this uh, at the finish line, this guy said, oh, I, um, I see, I've seen your picture up at University of Waterloo for varsity track and cross country. And I go to Waterloo as well. And um, if you're going to be in school this summer, we should do, um, you know, we should do some races. And so I was in co-op. So I was in school in the summer and so was he. And so we ended up uh, doing some triathlons because I was, you know, I could ride a bike and he was fun. And so we did a few triathlons together and that, that was it. So huge um, influence for sure from being away from home and being at University of Waterloo and making friends with uh, Mike Bain. That was my friend that I made at that running race, we used to call him Mike the Brain Bane, and he used to work at IBM. He was a co-op student at IBM, <laughs> and uh, and like all good Waterloo co-op students, landed a great job there. And um, and then yeah, started doing triathlon and wanted to go to the Olympics. And uh, the Olympic format changed a bit; that didn't really suit my strengths. So I decided, oh well, I, I love swimming, biking, and running all day long. So I'll do Ironman because that's like nine hours long. (laughs) So I started to train for Ironman. So I started triathlon in 1989, raced on the national team and and really did aspire to go to the Olympics, uh, but ended up switching to Ironman in 1997. And that's when I started uh, biking, swimming and running all day. (laughs) And then Ironman and that was it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was looking up like the difference between Ironman and Olympic triathlons before we spoke and it's it's a really big difference. So did that take extra training to move up to the Ironman and like how long did that take? Um, it takes extra training. So Olympic distance is 1.5 kilometer swim, 40 kilometer bike ride and a 10 kilometer run. And an Ironman is about four times longer approximately. So 3.8 kilometer swim, 
180 kilometer bike ride and then a marathon 42 kilometers so yeah I just gradually uh, increased my distance my first long race was in Japan Miyakajima Japan in 1997 and that was a 3k swim 150k bike and then a marathon 42k run and I was totally under trained for it uh my longest run was you know maybe 25 kilometers my longest bike ride was maybe 90 kilometers and now I was going to 150k on the bike and a full 42k run uh, but I had some speed from doing the shorter races so it's kind of like um the way that uh, Andre de Grasse can run the 100 meter sprint and the 200 meter sprint it's not quite the same but I, I had the speed from doing the shorter races and I took that to the longer races so I ended up having a great race at my first long distance race and I just you know I loved the idea of pacing and I was never fast uh, in terms of you know I, I was never ever going to be a 400 meter track runner uh, the short distance wasn't great for me I would do better as the race was longer. So I totally found my niche in doing Ironman races. So yes, but definitely took a lot more training. And, um, but, uh, you know, it, it all takes a lot of work, whether you're doing short course or long course, it's just different work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so really, while you were making this transition into Ironman and running these triathlons, you also had already started a career as a math teacher, right? Um, and then eventually you transitioned to sport full-time after seven years of teaching. So was that something that you expected to do, or did you think this was going to be kind of a, a hobby? Yeah, I did never. I never expected that I would resign from teaching. I, it was actually it happened because I had a really bad race at the world championships. So I had been successful at Olympic distance, you know, moderately didn't make the Olympics, but I was doing, doing well. And then I switched to Ironman and was doing well. And then I went to the world championships in 1998 and I, I just really had a really tough marathon and, you know, the tears were flowing, the body was cramping. I was walking and I thought to myself, what am I doing out here? You know, I've got this degree from the University of Waterloo in math and computer science. Like that's just so, it's such an esteemed university. And I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm out here in, in Hawaii, which sounds glamorous, but not running in Hawaii. I'm out here, you know, sweating, exhausted, dying, walking, crying. And I've got this degree from the University of Waterloo and I could have a six-figure job. Like, what am I doing? And you know, it was kind of at, at that moment, I thought, I'm, I'm going to stop racing. And so I ended up going to a work fair for technology. And I went to get myself that six figure job. <laughs> and uh, I had the interviews. And ultimately, it came down to, um, you know, at that time, that was 1990s, and it was website design that I was going to be doing. And <clears throat> I ended up asking the question, can I work from home? which nowadays doesn't sound strange, but in 1990s, it did. <laughs> and I said, can I work like three to four hours a day? And they're like, you don't want to work, do you? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so it was kind of that turning point that, yes, I, you know, I had that part of my, my brain that said, I can be sitting in an office making lots of money using my degree, or I could be training, working really hard and trying to figure out why I just 
essentially failed at the world championships and uh, I wasn't ready to walk away. So at that stage, I was still a teacher and I ended up ultimately resigning from teacher teaching. I didn't do it right away. Uh, I started to work part time as a teacher and I was lucky I was teaching math. I was teaching computer science mainly. And so at that stage, I was able to actually teach from home (laughs) remotely, which again, doesn't sound weird now, but back then, that's 1998, 1999, I was teaching website design to my students through a chat room. And they handed in their assignments on their website, on their webpage. And so I was kind of actually able to dabble a bit more into sport and not be at school all the time. And then ultimately, I resigned from teaching and did sport full time, because I just had this um, unfulfilled goal, uh, not necessarily of winning, but of doing my best. I knew I wasn't able to do my best with divided uh, affection for my sport and for my career as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you then moved into sport full time and you could focus all your attention on on training. What did your average day look like as a professional triathlete? I think most people probably have no idea what professional triathletes do day to day? (laughs) Well, swimming was my weakest sport. So I needed to swim six to seven days a week. So I would swim around 30 kilometers a week, usually around five to six kilometers per day. And I actually ended up swimming with 10 and 13 year olds, like the kids swim team. And there I was in with them every morning from 530 till seven and swimming with the swim team. And um, humbled by them, but definitely using their speed and their workouts to get faster. So that was huge. Uh, then from there, I'd either go right into a run workout or I'd come home and, uh, and have something, you know, to eat. And then I would be doing some sort of a run workout, which would last anywhere from an hour to three hours, depending on the day, uh, or a bike first, but usually a, a run or a bike, um, but then both close together and then biking anywhere from two hours to five hours. So, you know, usually the biggest day I had would be around seven to eight hours. And it was almost like a simulation day where I would bike for five hours. And then I would run right after biking for about two to two and a half hours. And that was my biggest day. And sometimes I'd follow that up with a recovery swim just to keep my feel for the water. Uh, And then on the days that weren't like that, so a five hour bike ride, two and a half hour run, then an easy swim. Uh, the days that were more short, like, you know, a, a one and a half to two hour swim, one to two hour run, two to three hour bike, I would also have some strength work in there. Uh, and on the easy days where I just swam to recover, I would then have physio, uh, go to physio to do some preventative work. And, and generally, I, I went to physio two or three days a week, whether I was injured or not. That was just to keep on top of my strength and balance and uh, and then there was one to two massages each week as well. So usually it was somewhere around 30 hours of training per week, 25 to 30 hours of actual working out. And then probably another uh, 10 hours a week of physio, massage, mobility, uh, and then a whole bunch of sleeping too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it it really was exactly what you described before, biking, running and swimming all day. 
Yeah, pretty much it was. And, and I loved it. You know, even now I'm retired from sport. And I mean, the pandemic kind of made it worse because we were locked down and, uh, you know, you had to gravitate to what made you what brought you joy. And for me, it's always been exercise. And so I've probably been exercising more in the pandemic than prior. But, um, you know, I would I still as a retired athlete would try to exercise somewhere between two to three hours per day right now. It's called exercise now, though. It's not called training anymore because <laughs> I can do what I want to do. If I want to go easy, I go easy. If I want to get off my bike and go grab something out of the fridge, I do that. Uh, there's no there's no more, you know, turning up the music to the loudest possible uh, decibels to get through a workout. <laughs> right. Um, oh, that's funny. So then I guess the, the other thing I wanted to ask about your professional triathlete career is, um, how did it change over those 20 years that, that you were competing professionally? I I'm sure that it wasn't the same for all 20 years that your training changed. Yes, for sure. I mean, that first really 10 years I was doing Olympic distance. So it was much shorter training, harder, like faster. And I was, teaching as well so back when I was teaching I would get up and swim in the morning before work so from 5 a.m till say 7 then I'd go and I'd be teaching you know calculus (laughs) by (laughs) 8 and then uh, I would finish teaching and then go home and do another workout and then I'd prepare my lessons in the nighttime so that was my life for seven years so I pretty much did two sports per day plus did my job as a teacher then when I uh, did full-time sport I, you know, had a bit more flexibility, but I was still doing the five hand swims, uh, but could now supplement with some physio and massage. And uh, I did some tutoring actually for a little bit, just so I didn't have to live like a starving student right away. And, um, and then as I got to be, you know, more dedicated to that goal, my goal really was to win my first Ironman. Uh, it then involved travel outside of Canada to do training camps. So I had already been racing, like my first international race was 1992 in Switzerland. And so I had already been traveling to race in uh, Europe and, uh, you know, Hawaii and the United States. But it wasn't until the year 2000 that I actually went away from home for six weeks to train somewhere. And uh, that evolved uh, because I knew that, you know, winter wasn't conducive really to being at my very best. So I went to Australia for six weeks, uh, kicking and screaming really, because I have a huge attachment to home. So it wasn't the easiest uh, thing to do, but uh, I went to Australia to train in the year 2000, actually was training with Simon Whitfield who won the gold that year. And we were just training partners there. And uh, so it was pretty neat. Like we were just a great group of I was a group of great athletes, but we weren't great yet. Like none of us had done anything. We were just all plodding along. <laughs> and uh, But I remember before that Ironman, I did Ironman New Zealand. I thought, you know, everything's been in place to have a great race. Like you've been not in Canada. You've been riding your bike outside, not in the snow and swimming in a beautiful outdoor pool. And then I went to Ironman New Zealand and I was able to win my first race. And so that was you know, a huge highlight to, you know, that's half the battle really is you can train hard and you might um, set yourself up for success, but until you believe you can do it, you can't really do it. 
And so now I had had accomplished that, which was just a huge goal. And, uh, you know, then I just wanted to continue to get faster and get stronger and, uh, and, and keep accomplishing things. And, uh, but, you know, I also wanted to have impact. Like I was a teacher for, for seven years and every day I got to be in children's lives and be an influence to them. And that was really important to me. And I always wanted to be a teacher from the time I was like 10 years old. That's what I wanted to do is to teach. And now I was like running around the world, basically in my my swimsuit, essentially, which seems so trivial. And so once I'd won my first Ironman, my goal really was to have some sort of impact and do more with my victory. And, uh, and that's when I, you know, started to make the tie in. I, I have cystic fibrosis. Uh, which is a lung disease, and it's genetic. And I never really told people that. And uh, then I had people reach out that kind of knew, and, and it was like, you know, maybe this is my impact. Maybe being, uh, you know, being in sport, showing that sport is so important for health and well-being and self-esteem. And you know, it's it's um, it's not nice being unwell, but for all those kids that are unwell, that they can see that, hey. This is somebody that has my same disease and they're doing triathlon and it gives them hope. And it really didn't click until after I won my first Ironman that I could do that. And now all of a sudden I wasn't just running around the world in a bathing suit trying to win races. I was actually trying to encourage other people, especially kids, to do sport for their health, their well-being, their self-esteem. And uh, and then I really, you know, honestly, that was that became uh, you know, my cystic fibrosis became my purpose, my superpower. And that then enabled me to have a great career, really. So that was sort of the evolution. And, uh, you know, as time went on, uh, I, that was my outlet for, for racing. And every time I got to a start line, whether I was in the lead or in 10th place or wherever I was, like my greater purpose was just to keep moving forward because I didn't know what person with CF was going to be watching me and, uh, and how, you know, my race might impact them. So that's sort of the evolution. (laughs) Yeah, that's, um, that's really, uh, it's really interesting that you just didn't tell anyone for the longest time about the cystic fibrosis. And then it kind of naturally came out uh, in its own way. I wonder if, because after you retired from sport, you became a a motivational speaker, and that's what you do today as well, among other things. Was it kind of a natural flow into motivational speaking, given that you were already kind of bridging uh, into that area anyway? Yes, for sure. And I think the teaching helps. You know, the teaching that was like, there's there's no more... I mean, when you're in front of a classroom, you're essentially trying to motivate, you're a motivational speaker, like you're trying to sell math and computer science to teenagers, right? Like, that's what we do. And now, basically, I'm trying to sell motivation. I'm not a salesperson, but, you know, I'm trying to motivate people to, I mean, I just, I believe so much in the power of sport and the power of belief and the power of the heart and 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 so for me, it's it's so easy to to talk about it, and I would do it while I was racing. Like often, I'd be interviewed, and and I'd have a platform to talk. And um, 
so it just sort of evolved as time went on. I'd get asked to, you know, say a few words here and there, and and then it just kept evolving into the speaking. Uh, and and it's interesting because now when I get up in front of a group to speak, that's my race. Like that's my buzz. Like the night before, I'm like thinking about it, and I'm planning it, I'm visualizing it, all the things I did as an athlete. Uh, I'm doing now as a speaker like I like to see the room beforehand like I need to see my the race course like the same thing and um, uh, like being careful about what I eat nothing too salty because then I won't have be able to speak properly <laughs> and, uh, and and it's and I just love getting in front of people whether it be crossing a finish line or speaking and, and trying to uh, motivate them to be their best self that's that's what it's all about. We all have so much power in each of us. And, and, uh, and I just, like, I, I just want to get people to, to find their power and, and, and find out what, what lights them up and do it every day, even if it's against the norm, even if it's not the way they were raised necessarily to be. I mean, I have a degree from University of Waterloo at math and computer science, and I became a triathlete. And, but I still used all my school skills. You know, I, I used the problem solving and I would tell myself, you know, Lisa, you're the best problem solver out here. You, you got through University of Waterloo. <laughs> so certainly you can problem solve your way through losing your nutrition in the race. Certainly you can problem solve and motivate yourself, even though you're in 10th place, 20 minutes behind. Like you never quit when you were in calculus 2B or in computer science when it was overwhelming, like it was tough being at school. And, but I, you know, I didn't quit then and I'm not quitting now at, at kilometer 35 in the marathon. So it's all the same skills, uh, whether it be in education as an academic or in business or in sport, it's all about working hard, being the best you can be, being a great problem solver and, and just leading with your heart. I love that message. And when you pair it with the find what you want to do and do it, uh, that's awesome. Um, so the other job that you have, because you have several, really, you're a motivational speaker, speaker you're an author, uh, and you're also a TV commentator uh, for marathons, swimming, and triathlons. You um, were a commentator for the Tokyo Olympics, in fact. So how... Do you now prepare for those events now that you're watching um, and narrating for people? Does your own experience uh, inform that work? And I and I mean to ask that question about both your experience racing, but also in motivational speaking. Mm-hmm. It's it's all it's all the same. I mean, it's interesting because as an athlete, I did a ton of training so I would be as prepared as possible on the race course and so that when I was out there racing there could be no doubt like I might not win I can't control what other people do but I can control myself and my preparation was the best that I could do my skill set was the best that I had it wasn't perfect but it was the best that I could do because I dotted the I's and crossed the T's in my training and it was the same with preparing for the Tokyo Olympics uh I got to do marathon swimming and race walking. Well, I don't race walk. I knew nothing about race walk, but I had to learn, had to prepare. And I loved it. I loved learning something new. And so I did the research. So it was just like my training 20 years ago is I 
I was going to be as prepared as possible. No, nothing would be left unturned. So my goal was to get all my research done a week before the races and then sort of fine tune it and fine tune it and come up with, you know, I I basically went from 100 pages of information to like 10 and for each sport. So, you know, came down and, you know, again, the same thing with training. You do all these hours and hours of training and then the week of the race, you're just doing the tiny little bits of training so that you're totally prepared for race day. Same thing. And even even just taking your mind off of it, you know, the days before a race, I would have my training time, my preparation time, my mental prep time. And then I'd try to walk away from it so that I would not overstimulate before the before the race. Same thing with my prep for Tokyo. I did my preparation and I put it away and go for a walk. And I do that before I do a speech as well. I'm prepared. And then an hour before the talk, I'll go for a walk. I mean, I was doing a talk for a company two years ago when we still had in-person talks. And an hour before my talk, I was in the gym doing a 15-minute workout because I just need to be completely clear and not thinking, you know, if I spend too much time thinking about either the race, the speaking, or the Olympics, I won't have the energy when I'm actually in it. And I need all my energy for when I'm in it. So it was very much the same. But uh, yeah, for the uh, preparation for Tokyo, tons, tons of research. And, uh, but, you know, as I said, I really loved it. And I, you know, my mom would say, oh, you're working too hard. You know, do you have to do all that work? I don't think anyone else is doing that work. And I said, well, I need to sleep at night. And my personality is, is be overprepared so that you can handle anything on race day or commentary day or whatever it is. And, you know, if I mess up and and miss something, then that's fine. All I can say is I was as as prepared as I possibly could be. And if I make an error or a mistake, then that's life. That's the life of live TV commentary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I find that transition from athlete to commentary really interesting. I watch a lot of football and uh, it's interesting to see that um, the best athletes uh, or the goats are not always, uh, the best commentators. It really seems that, um, it, it takes so much focus and preparation, um, to be really great at both. So that makes a lot of sense. I think it's because I wasn't that talented as an athlete. I had to work really hard and, you know, somebody who, you know, you think about a Michael Phelps, who's such a great swimmer. I'm not saying it came easy to him at all. I'm not saying you didn't work hard, but I mean, there's some athletes that are just so, so talented that they don't have to do as much work as somebody else. And, and I'm like, I'm the first person to say that I had to work really hard. I wasn't that talented. And so I, that work ethic is there. So if let's say it came easy to me as an athlete, then I might be under the assumption that, Oh, Tokyo Olympics, it'll come to me. I'll just wing it. And that's just not the personality that I have at all. And uh, so maybe those commentators that maybe don't do such a great job, it's because they were so darn good when they actually were on the field. <laughs> They're like, I've never had to work this hard in all my life doing commentary. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I I really am interested in what you said about not naturally being a good athlete. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there who um, just don't really – 
don't really ever or have never found their niche in, in sport or or their type of exercise that they like and they think, oh, I'm just not athletic. Um, so it's interesting to hear um, someone who was a professional athlete say, oh, I wasn't, I'm not really a naturally athletic person. Yeah, I, I'm really not, honestly. Like, I, you can take my word for it. <laughs> I, uh, I was the, you know, the kid that wanted to get the, the scholarship to the University of Waterloo. And, you know, OFSA is like the Ontario Federation of, of Sport. It's the, you know, if you're a really good athlete, you go to OFSA in sport. Um, I never went, never qualified. And when I was at Waterloo, we have CIs. Now our team did end up going to CIs, but I mean, I wasn't a winner at CIs. Like, uh, whereas so many people I met were. And then, you know, it's really, I, I loved what I did. And when you love what you do and you have belief, and you put in the work, um, and you have a purpose, and I had a purpose, then that trumps talent every single time. And, you know, of course, I have like a little bit of talent, but I, uh, you know, it's not the same. I think, you know, honestly, my husband's a way better athlete than I am, but he didn't have a desire to be a professional. Like, you have to have the desire, too. There's a lot of great athletes that would have beat me hands down if they had decided I'm going to get off the couch and do sport. But they made other decisions. They made other choices. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe one day I would have been a professor at the University of Waterloo, uh, but I never made that choice. And but it would have been fun to do, but I didn't make that choice. And so, you know, we we sort of have those sliding glass door moments where we make choices. And uh, if we had chosen differently, what would our lives look like? <laughs> and maybe if I hadn't taken that chance and, you know, if I didn't have that bad race in Hawaii or I wanted to quit the sport and and get a job, I might have still just been teaching and never, never actually been a professional athlete and never won a single Ironman. And and that would have been fine, too, because maybe my life would have veered in a different direction. And um, and, and maybe then I would have been a professor at University of Waterloo. <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? Um, this has been really fascinating. Lisa, thank you so much. <laughs> my pleasure it's been great to kind of go back and I had great a great time at University of Waterloo it changed my life in many 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 ways not just academically but socially and athletically and uh, so it's fun to go back and, and you know put myself on campus a bit and, and think about all that so thank you for having me on the show thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please follow subscribe like whatever your podcast player lets you do And hey, if you want to meet more alumni, check out the fall issue of Waterloo Magazine. Inside, you'll find stories about connection and community, including a story from Lisa. You can find the digital issue at uwaterloo.ca slash magazine. Uncharted Warriors in the World is written and produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Carlos Saavedra is our editor. Carlos and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.